Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast. We'd like to thank you for taking a few moments out of your day to listen to what God is doing here in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. We hope today's message will be encouraging and uplifting to you. To learn more about Simple Church, maybe you'd like to be our guest for a service, please visit our website at www.simplechurchohio.com. There you'll find more information about us, location, service times, and even online giving opportunities. And now, here's today's message. That's always a great series because it speaks to your questions and what you ask for. So plan to be here with us that time. It'll be a a great time, all right? So here's what we're doing. We are in a series, and let's just go ahead and jump into it. We are in week four in a series called The Book of James. And what we've been doing in this series is we've actually just been going cover to cover on this letter or this book of the Bible, because typically as a church, we like to teach topically. We grab a subject, and then we, we go all over the Bible to discover what it has to say about that topic. But in this series, we're just going cover to cover through chapter one, two, three, four, five of the book of James. That's why it's a five-week series. And so this week is uh, week four, and so we'll be in chapter four. But, but let me tell you a little bit about James. First, James was the brother of Jesus. He was not James the disciple. And James was, being the brother of Jesus, was not a believer that Jesus was the Christ, not during his life. In fact, we learn that James converted sometime after Jesus' resurrection. So can you imagine, he's got a brother, and the Bible shows us stories of, of his brothers being sarcastic with Jesus, like, come on, aren't you the Messiah? Do something, and, and, and ribbing Jesus. They just did not buy into the fact that he was the Messiah until he died and rose from the dead. And once you see a dead man alive, how many of y'all know you convert immediately? You know what I'm saying? And so, and so James said, this guy's got to be the Christ. He's my brother. I didn't think he was, but he is. And so James is the one writing this letter. And he writes this letter, very, very practical wisdom for Christ followers. All right? It's not written to people that are far from God. It's written to the church. And the church was scattered because they were being persecuted because of their faith. And so James wrote this letter, and he offers them a lot of wisdom. Now, i got to warn you, if you haven't been with us through this series, James is very pointed. Like, he just says things how they are and makes a left turn really, really harsh. And you'll want to say these words that my wife coined last week. Dang, James. Dang. Because he just, just says stuff that is just so pointed. And so here's where we've been. First chapter in the first week, James hits us right out of the gate and talks to us about trials and that we need to count it joy or be joyful about the fact that we got trials and tribulations and issues in our life. How many of y'all are thankful for that? Nobody is. And yet James says, count it joy because when, when you have those issues in your life, God's working. And the second week in chapter two, we talked about discrimination. That was a tough subject. But James approaches it and says, listen, when you discriminate against anybody for any reason, it is sin in your life. You are walking away from God. And the way to upend that sin in your life, to deal with it, is to value people. Value all of their differences and all the ways that God has made them. Value Jesus and your relationship with him. And then to value mercy. Be somebody who's a carrier of mercy. And then last week, my wife gave a message on taming the tongue, which was from chapter 3. And how many of y'all have, know that that is a difficult thing to do, is to tame your tongue? That's not easy. You can hold your tongue, you can bite your tongue, but your tongue has stuff to say. And it's not always nice, it's not always friendly. And we talked about how the, the tongue being the smallest member of your body, being one of them, is yet one of the most powerful in your whole being. And how it itself is set on fire by the fires of 
hell. Shanda talked about how it's not a words issue that we have, so we're dealing with the problem. You don't just deal with the words that you say. Some people say, well, I tried to stop cussing, or I tried to, to hold my peace about it, and that's not really what you need to do. You need to let Jesus deal with your heart, because it's not a words issue, it's a heart issue. And today we're going to continue on in chapter 4, and James is going to address an issue that is creating a toxic culture in the church then, and I believe it's even creating a toxic culture in the church today. And the first nine verses of this chapter, James is focusing on and asking the question and prodding their hearts about what is at the center of their life. Because as a Christ follower, we're to live lives that are God-centered, kind of like your living room. Your living room, all the furniture in it is pointed towards one thing, right? And that's the TV for most of us. It's a TV-centered living room. We point everything towards it. Well, God wants our lives to be God-centered. That means everything in our life, our relationships, our finances, everything is pointed at God. So we're looking to him to lead us. But like with everybody, there are things that pull us away. Things that derail our lives and that God-centeredness. And so James uses the first five verses to paint that picture. And then he uses verses six through nine to set up how we'll get back on track. So hang with me. I'm going to read them to you now. I'm going to read verses one through five, and then I'll go back and break it down for you, all right? James says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. Dang, James. It's okay. You'll get it, and you'll play along with me eventually. You want only what, you, what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. Dang, James. See, there it is. It's fun to play, right? It's fun to interact with God's word. It's okay. God's not offended that you're all like, man, that's tough. Dang, James. All right. <laughs> you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Dang, James. See, there you go. So now it's just down to posturing. I don't even got a point anymore. I just got to put my hand out. You got it. Dang, James. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. So the last verse, he's talking about that God-centeredness, that life where everything points to God. But this is a picture of what some Christians' lives look like. We all fall prey to the concept of pleasure. Like, pleasure, we like it. We like discomfort, we like things that bring us pleasure. We want to, we point our lives towards them and it's easy to drift away from a God-centered life to a pleasure-centered life. A life that you would ultimately say is about me. It's all about me. And I'd say one sentence that encompasses this whole passage is, a pleasure-centered life is marked by selfishness. A pleasure-centered life is marked by selfishness. Now this is the devil's goal for your life. This is not what God wants for you. This is the devil's goal for you, to distract you from God's plan, to take you away from what he wants for you and appeal to your sin nature. And he'll allure you away from God through our worldly passions, through those things that are inside of us. And a pleasure-centered life 
is all about you. It's about feeding you what you want. And so the devil draws you away. And this lifestyle is marked by an attitude of selfishness. And if we look at what selfishness does, selfishness drives several unhealthy things in our lives. The first thing that it does is selfishness forgets God. Selfishness forgets God. When, when selfishness drives our lives, we forget all about God in our lives. We forget about his role in our life. We forget about him entirely. We replace him in our hearts with our own agendas. James says it this way. He says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Now remember, I'm gonna keep reminding you as we go through these verses because it's easy to point at somebody far from God and say this is their behavior, but James is talking to Christians. Say, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. Yeah, that's right. He's talking to you. Thank you for whoever's playing along with me. I appreciate it. It's early. I know. I got it. Some of y'all, I've been up since 4 a.m. this morning, and I've been drinking lots of coffee. So catch up with me. Let's do this thing. <laughs> He's talking to Christians who are pursuing things in this life, but they're doing it for selfish reasons. Their motives are all off. And somewhere along the way, he's talking to Christians who have also forgotten God. They're not even talking to him about what they're pursuing anymore. Their daily lives, there's nothing they're praying to him about or talking to him about. They've stopped asking him for guidance in their life. They've stopped checking in with God, like, God, what should I do in my career? God, how should I be a better parent? Lord, how do I show my spouse I love her? How, how can I be a blessing to other people? God, what should I do with my finances? How should I honor you? They, God, I've got this need in my life. They've just stopped with all of that. They've forgotten about God. And oftentimes, they stop praying because their desires, the things that, that you come to want because you are now living a self-centered life, have gotten out of step with God's desires for your life. Take a look. Psalms 37.4 says this, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Do you know, can I tell you that God wants to meet all your needs? He has a desire to do that. In fact, the Bible says that my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God's a good father. He wants to meet your needs. He wants to take care of you, and he wants you blessed. But the way that happens is first by delighting in him. Most people miss that. They, they miss that. They miss the part where they need to look into God's ways and delight themselves in God's ways of, of doing things. And I think it's one of the biggest issues in our churches today that we have pastors who stand in the pulpit and in front of people and tell them, hey, listen, if you just get God in your life, everything's going to be all right. You'll be rich. You'll have nice cars. If you just write this check and sow this seed, then God is bound to do what you tell him to do because that's how God works. They reduce him, God down to a cosmic vending machine. And let me tell you, that is not how God works at all. You are not his boss. You are his child. Thank you. Serious. God is not a vending machine that you get to walk up to, put your money in the slot, hit A11 and get your miracle. That's not how it works. Some of you are like, A11 is good. I like that he chose that number. You, so, let's be honest. There's people in here, you know what A11 is on your vending machine at the office. You know what it is. <laughs> Listen, I'm not telling you that your life won't be better with God because it will. I'm telling you that it's not true you won't have any problems if God's in your life because you will. 
And when you do, God wants you to lean into him. That's what a God-centered life is all about. But when you live a pleasure-centered life, you forget all about God. You leave him out. As Christ followers, God's word is very contrary to this attitude that, God, you need to give me everything I want. In fact, the Bible just goes so far as to say that we need to die to our own desires in order to live out the life that God wants for us. We must delight ourselves in the Lord. Then he gives us the desires of our hearts because our desires change. Are you hearing me? When you delight yourself in God's way, the desires that you had in the first place change completely. We don't get what we want because we want the wrong things. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, we get what we want because we want what he wants us to want. You're welcome. I'll say it again, if you need me to. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, we get what we want because we want what he wants us to want. That's it. There's even a challenge to this, though. James addresses it, and he says, even when you do ask, so in other words, there's some of you that aren't praying, but there's others of you that are. You're praying, you're talking to God about it. You don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So some are talking to God about their issues. Others are not. But they're still not getting an answer from God because their motivations are wrong. Let me give you an answer or an example of this because God does not answer prayers that come from a place of wrong motive. Although I will tell you there's things that you can pray about and talk to God about and ask him for help with that he wants for you. But your motives are all wrong about going about it. Like this, for example, getting out of debt. That's a powerful thing that I promise you God wants for your life. Freedom from any debtor. Freedom from all debts except a debt to continually love mankind. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul said. I owe no man anything except a debt of love. That's where God wants you. He wants you in that place of freedom. But some of you are praying, God, get me out of debt so that you can build wealth and impress people, so that you can have a nicer house, so that you can drive the nicer car, so that you can wear a fancy outfit, so that you can go out to eat as often as you want, all so that you can rub it in the nose of your brother or sister who have been doing better than you all of their lives. Your motives are wrong. And yet I believe that God would have you debt-free so that you can be generous with the resources he's given you. See, I don't think Christians have a generosity problem. I think their hands are tied. Financially, they are. And I think God wants you free from that so that you can be a blessing to everyone on all occasions at all times. God wants that for you. That's the right motive, though. If you were to pray from that motive, I believe God honors that prayer and will bless you and give you the power to get out of debt. See, it's the same thing, but the wrong motive. God's not opposed to that. And so with the wrong motives, God doesn't answer those prayers. That's what James is saying. He said, we have to die to what we want so that we can want what God wants for our lives. And I'm sad to tell you that this is not what the Bible says the condition of Christianity will look like in the end times. You say, well, when are the end times? This is it. We're in it now. We're in the last days. I'll come back to that in a few weeks. We're gonna preach it during the, the, the You Ask For It series because many of you ask about it. But we're in the last days. Listen to what Paul says, what happened to the church in the last days. He says, they, that, meaning, that means Christians. He said, they will love pleasure rather than God. They will appear to have a godly life, but they will not 
let its power change them. What's he talking about? He's saying, hey, listen, there's people that are going to go to church. They're going to wear the Jesus t-shirts. They're going to they're gonna, they're, they're gonna get Jesus tattoos and crosses. They're going to listen to Christian music and go to Christian concerts, but, but they won't God work, let God work in their lives. They won't delight themselves in the Lord, and they'll deny God the opportunity to work in their lives as a result. Can I tell you that, that coming to church on Sunday morning doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car? It's not. And James is addressing the issue of us making life all about ourselves, pursuing pleasure and forgetting that God is your father and all that comes with that. God wants to be the number one place in our lives, the focus of it all. And so selfishness forgets God, and then it also becomes fascinated with the world. When selfishness is the driving part in your life, you'll forget God, and then you get enamored with what the world is doing. You'll look at what they're doing, and you're like, man, I want to live that way. They sure look like, look like they're having fun. They went out Friday night. They didn't even get home till 4 in the morning because they don't even know where they were. They can't remember it all. They had so much fun. They partied and took great pictures. They spent their wealth and, and travel abroad and and. And oh my gosh, look at their clothes. And oh my gosh, look at, look at all the stuff they have. We start looking at the world and the way that they do things. And we ignore God's word. James says this, you adulterers. Dang, James. He's saying, hey, listen, you've committed spiritual adultery. The relationship that we as Christ followers enter into with Jesus is a covenant one. Where he promises him, his whole self to us. As we promise to give him lordship of our life, we give our whole selves to him. Same thing in a marriage relationship. You're creating a covenant relationship with God when you commit to be a Christ follower. And so when we step out of line, when we make ourselves the focus of our lives, James says, you're committing spiritual adultery. He says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now, this is some of the verses that you guys like to hang out on. You're like, dear Lord, This is the verse that I've been saying for years. This is exactly why we don't need to hang out with sinners and those people that are far from God. This verse right here says it. How can you be a friend of the world? So we're just gonna build our church, we're gonna build our walls, and we're gonna hang out and be safe in here from all the thinners. That's not what this verse says. That's not what it says at all. In fact, Jesus said, hey, listen, you need to go out into the world and make disciples of all people. That means you're gonna have to hang out with people that are thinners and far from God. People that are not like you, they don't dress like you, they don't talk like you, they don't live like you. And you're gonna have to spend time with them because that's what Jesus told us to do. But this verse is not speaking to that. But this verse is saying, hey listen, if you are a friend of the world, in other words, you are fascinated with the mindset of and pursuing earthly things where pleasure is the center, That's when you make yourself a friend of the world. When we worship creation rather than the creator. When this world is ahead of God. And so he repeats himself, which by the way, you should always listen to the Bible when it repeats itself. And guys, especially you, I'm pretty sure this letter was written to the men of the church because he's repeating himself so we can can hear him. Don't be mad at me, guys. You know it's true. It's all right. And so he repeats himself and he says... 
Again, I say, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. See, God doesn't make you an enemy. You know that? God's not your enemy. God is your friend. He loves you. He is for you. God is good. However, there are things you can do. There are decisions that you can make that will put you in direct opposition to God and who he is. That's what happens. And God's not okay with that. He's not okay with us making pleasure the center of our lives and focusing on worldly things over him. He's not okay when you choose something else as Lord of your life versus him. In fact, he gave us a set of rules to live by in the Old Testament. You, you know what these are. There's 10 of them. They're the things that keep getting ripped down out of our schools and ripped down out of our, our places of, of, where, where, of, uh, of uh, lawmaking and where our politicians aren't able to see them. We're ripping them down everywhere. It's the Ten Commandments. And the first thing, the first rule is something you should always pay attention to, kind of like in Fight Club. The first rule is we do not talk about Fight Club, right? That's an important one. The second rule is you don't talk about Fight Club. Well, in here, God's given us the rules. He's number, rule number one, you don't have any other gods before me. And that word gods there is lowercase g. And he means, he doesn't mean any other gods, any other spiritual, he's no other rulers. There should be no one else or nothing else in your life that is dictating how you live your life. Just him. He should be at that number one place in your life. Yet as Christians, we have much that rules our lives. So you say, Aaron, how can you say that? I'm offended this morning. How can you say that I'm a Christian and I have other things that rule my life? Well, let me tell you how I can say that. Let me point specifically to something, all right? I can tell you what rules your life. Do you know how I can do that? I can look at two things in your life and tell you what's most important to you and what you prioritize. I can look in your calendar and I can look at your checkbook. Those two things will tell me what's most important to you. I can look at your calendar and I can see where you prioritize your time because people tell me, well, it's nice outside and, and here's Sunday. This is the only day off I really get, Aaron. You know, yesterday I had to mow the grass and take my kids to soccer. So today, today I'm going to go out and enjoy the weather and I'm going to remove myself from Christian fellowship. I'm going to remove myself from an opportunity to worship. I'm going to remove myself from an opportunity to hear God's word. I'm not going to go to church today. I'm going to go spend it doing something else. We said, well, I'm a little too busy. You know, I'm in all these sports groups. I can't go to a grow group. I don't have time in my life to get, to get let Jesus change my life and the way that I live. No, no, I'm not, I, I can't do that. Well, I can tell you what, what you prioritize in your life by looking at your calendar and looking at your checkbook. How do you spend your money? Do you honor God with your finances? Now, listen, just don't worry about it. Some of you are getting a little, little nervous. Oh, God, is he going to preach another message on tithing? I'm not. I'm just saying I can tell you what's most important to you by looking at those two things. And I'm not coming down on you. I'm just telling you the truth, that it's easy to drift. It's, it's easy to drift. That's why James is speaking in such a tone. He understands it's easy to drift. It's easy to get to a place where God is second in your life. So I will ask you this question. Is there any evidence in your life that someone could use to accuse you of being a Christian? Is there anything that you're doing? Is there a way that you're living in your life that somebody could grab a hold of and say, this is how I know they're a Christ follower? 
No matter where you're at in that, you need to remember that Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. God does not play second fiddle to anyone. So here we are in this condition. We've forgotten God. We're fascinated with the world, living a pleasure-centered life. And the next symptom that James says shows up is that selfishness fights with people. If you're living a life of selfishness, you're going to fight with other people. And again, this is to Christians, not to the world. To those who carry the label Christian, James says, verse 1 through 2, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? Dang, James. You guys are looking for it. I'm so proud of you. This is my favorite service. You guys really are. You're my favorite service. Your external war that is raging, the one that is happening around you, is a direct result from the internal war that is raging within you. Something inside has gone sideways that is causing you to fight. A few years ago, I was, uh, I was, this was many years ago, actually, if I'm being honest. I was, uh, I was out on 670, and I was running low on gas, and I got off on the Cassidy Avenue exit. Anybody know where I'm talking about? All right. It scared me a little bit when I got off the exit, if I'm going to be honest. It's not, I wasn't familiar with this end of town. It was dark outside, but I was in a good mood. It was spring break. Woohoo! Like, I was having a good time, right? And I pull into this gas station to get some gas, and it's one of those four-pump gas stations, really small. And there's tons of people waiting, because that's what people do on the weekends. They gas up so they can go off on their excursions, and, you know, they, and, they, and, they, and they're, they're wise about their time and, they're, and, and getting filled up. And so Friday night, it's busy at the gas station. I pulled into the lot, and I and I'm, I'm drive around because everything is full, and I position myself to pull in after this truck. I see this guy getting into his truck, and I pull in immediately as he pulls away. And I get out, and I'm, I'm again, woohoo, spring break. I'm having a good time, and, and I'm, I'm pumping my gas, and, and just life is dandy. And across the way from the other pump, this guy gets out of his car and comes storming across the parking lot. Now, I'm already in unfamiliar territory, and it's dark. And if I'm being honest, I'm a little scared, but apparently not very smart. Because this guy yells at me. He says, hey, I know you saw me waiting on that spot. You pulled in right in front of me. And I, and I, I was kind of shook because here I am hand on the pump, and I was like, are you, are you talking to me? And he repeats himself yelling at me. And I, I was immediately apologetic. I said, man, I'm so sorry. I, did, I, I didn't see you there. I, I didn't mean to cut you. I apologize. And he said, it doesn't matter. I got a spot anyway. And you would have thought that a dude yelling at me in a strange part of town who was clearly on edge, that I would have just shut my mouth. <laughs> that is not what I did. I said, well, then why'd you bother saying anything in the first place? And he was already, he was walking past me. He'd already got to the door, and he stopped. And I was like, dang, James. Because my name is James, too. It's James Aaron, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, see how I worked that in there? That's nice. I'm going to add that to my notes for next service. That's good. <laughs> and the guy turns around. He's, what did you say to me? And you would have thought that I would have said, oh, nothing. La, la, la. Just singing. I'm just not... I repeated it, and this dude, I cannot repeat the words that came out of his mouth from there on, but I realized that I was, the only thing I had to defend myself 
was a gas pump. And then I began to think very quickly, do I even have a lighter? Like, if I douse this guy, can I light this guy on fire? Like, what's going to happen if he comes across the way again back in front of me? And uh, thankfully, God is full of grace, even when I'm not. So I'm not telling you that's how you respond. But, but you know, there was something going on in that guy's life long before he ever met me. There was something at war within this guy that he picked a fight with me in the middle of a gas station over a pump that he quickly got after I cut him and did not realize it. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody that, would, that would, goes to Walmart, they get in a fight. They go to a restaurant, they get in a fight with the, with the server. Nothing's good enough. They go to the family reunion, they get in a fight. They go to church, they get in a fight. You guys know anybody? Anybody, you know anybody like, don't point. That's not smart. They're already on edge. Don't point. That's not, don't do that. We all know somebody like that. You say, it's not me. I'm not the one with the problem. If you're that person that gets in a fight at every turn, let me tell you something. If everywhere you turn, there's a fight, the common denominator is you, cupcake. (laughs) See, I'm picking a fight. See what I'm doing? I'm just trying to make them mad as they listen to me. One of my pastors and overseers, Gary Fowler, always says that if everywhere you walk, it smells like poop, you should check your shoes. It's probably you. I don't mean to get in your business. I just love you enough to be honest with you. Here's where it comes from. James says, you want what you don't have. In other words, you're pleasure-focused. You want stuff, and you've forgotten God. You've developed this scarcity mentality that if somebody else is blessed, that there's not possibly room for you to be blessed. You've forgotten that God reigns. He sends rain, actual rain, down on the just and the unjust in this world. That he reigns on the farmers who are far from him. He reigns on their lands and they have crops and he blesses people because it's all his and he can do what he likes with it. And we forget that. We develop this 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 scarcity mentality that if somebody else is blessed, then man, we're missing out. And it leads us to a place of jealousy. We get upset that other people got stuff and we don't have it. And so because they don't have it and we want it, we get discontent and we start fights. James says, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. God hasn't given it to you, whatever it is you desire, and you haven't asked him for it, so you wage war. But brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not what God has for us. He wants us in unity so that we can go further and faster together. That's what he desires for us. But we're at each other's throats. We're jealous of each other's blessings, thinking that God won't possibly bless us with that thing that we want because someone else got it. We've forgotten God and become enamored with the world, and now we're at war with all. Instead of loving others and celebrating their blessings, we become jealous. And that's not the life God has called for us. That's not his best for us. And somewhere along the way, we got caught up in our selfishness. We lost focus of God and his desire to be first in our lives. We've forgotten his place and therefore ours, wrapped up in what we want, making our desires king, and we wind up focused on what we don't have. We wind up bitter, we wind up jealous, and we wind up fighting. So how do we live a God-centered life? What does that even look like? You say, well, if, if selfishness is at the center of a pleasure-centered life, if that's the driving factor, then the opposite of 
Selfishness would be selflessness, and you would be smart to think that, but that is not the answer. It is not selflessness. James tells us what the answer is, and I'll tell you this, is that a God-centered life is marked by humility. A God-centered life is marked by humility. Humility is what we need to avoid a pleasure-centered life that the world wants us to lead. Now, I want you to watch as we dive into verse 6. Watch as James changes his focus from us. Because he painted a picture of us in verses 1 through 5. And how we live a pleasure-centered life. And he puts his focus on God. Which, by the way, if you'll just put your focus on God, everything will change for you. And James knows that. And so he turns to God. And he says, and he, this is God, gives grace generously. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone from God, no matter how long you've walked away from God, he loves you. He's for you. He gives his grace generously to you. He even knows what you did last night. And he loves you anyways. And his grace is still for you. He's heard the things that you've said about him and his people. And he loves you still. His grace is for you. He gives it generously. James continues and says that as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the first thing we see as we look at what James is trying to teach us as we leave a self-centered life to a God-centered one is that humility releases God's grace. If you're in a condition of being wrapped up in the world, forgotten, and you've forgotten God, I will tell you that you need a course correction. You need to change gears. We call that repentance, where we turn and go the other way. And we need God's grace to do that. And a posture of humility is what releases God's grace into your life. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In the Old Testament, there were two kings. These were the first two kings that Israel ever saw. It was King Saul and King David. David is the one who who defeated the giant Goliath with the sling and the stones. Many of you know that story. And King Saul is somebody who made some mistakes, and his kingdom was ripped from him. And yet David, who was king after Saul, made plenty of mistakes, more recorded, I would say, than Saul. And yet God gave him grace. What was the difference between Saul and David? Why did the Bible, why did God say about David that he was a man after his own heart? The difference is pride versus humility. See, Saul, but when, but when his kingdom was ripped away from him, God sent him out to the battlefield and said, these people, listen, I need you to, to destroy these people. They are far from me. They are vile. Just wipe them out. Wipe out the women, the children, the king. Wipe out all their belongings. Burn everything to the ground. Destroy their cattle. Don't take anything from them. Destroy it all. And so Saul goes out to war, and he defeats them. And Saul decides to kill everybody there except the king. And he brings the king along with him, and instead of destroying all the belongings, he lets his soldiers loot the houses, and they take their cattle and their flocks. And then they meet Samuel, on the the prophet Samuel, on their way back home. And Samuel's talking to Saul, and Saul's like, dude, we just won the war, we just won the war. And Samuel says, what's that sound that I hear? Saul says, well, I know what God said, but... I wanted to go ahead and present the king to you. Here he is. And and also my guys wanted some of the cattle. And I thought I'd bring a bunch of them back and, you know, kind of reward them for their hard work. And and we're going to do a sacrifice right here. We're going to do that. 
Saul, when confronted with his mistake, said, my plan's better than God's plan. And Samuel said in that moment of pride, today you've lost the kingdom. Saul died some time later and David became king. David was a godly man. But he made a lot of mistakes. And the Bible tells the story about David and how there was a time that when kings go out to war. And David sent out his army, but he didn't go. And he was up on his roof. And from the rooftop, you can see the whole city because David's palace was taller than anyone else's. And from his rooftop, you can look down into people's homes and you can see women bathing. And so David, instead of going out to war where he should have been, was up on his roof perving on women. That's true. I'm, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm not making up the story. And he sees a woman named Bathsheba, and he decides, this is the woman who's worthy of having sex with me. Aren't I so nice? And he calls her over, and he has sex with her, and within a short amount of time, she contacts David and says, hey, by the way, I'm pregnant. And it ain't, ain't my husband's because he's been out to war with your men. So not only did David commit adultery because he slept with a married woman, but now he's, she's pregnant. And so David decides to do the very godly thing. He decides to cover it up and have her husband killed at war. Really awesome. Wasn't that nice of him? Such a good guy. No, it was terrible. It was horrible. So now, not only is he an, an adulterer, he's a murderer. And when David was confronted with his sin, the prophet Nathan came to him and said, you've committed a sin. He did, couldn't cover it up anymore. And David fell. He ripped his clothes, and he prayed, and he fasted, and he cried, and he confessed his sin. He humbled himself in the face of being confronted by what he had done. And God gave him mercy. He gave him grace as a result because humility releases God's grace into your life. Your response to being confronted with your sin, all the ways that you miss the mark and the ways that you're walking away from God, living a life that is not his best for you, all those things, your response to your sin being brought to your attention will bring grace or it will bring resistance. James says God opposes the proud. If you respond in a proud way, well, I'm just doing what I do. This is how I feel. This is how the world lives, and this is how everybody else is, and, and this should be fine. The Bible says God opposes you at that point. He does not give you his grace anymore. You can't even be a recipient of it. You stand in opposition to him. But if you own your sin, if you say, yeah, I've been walking far from God, and you repent, God is faithful to forgive you, and he gives you his grace. Then James says in, in verse 7, he says, So place yourself under God's authority. Resist the devil, and he will run away from you. So the opposite of selfishness is humility. And when we humble ourselves seeking God's grace for our selfishness. But now we need God's help further. We need his protection. We need his authority. Because not only do we have a tendency to sin, but we also have an enemy that is continuing to, to, to lead us or mislead us and try to tempt us and lure us away from God's best for our lives. And we need some authority to deal with our enemy. And so God says, listen, in order to have authority, you must submit to authority. You don't get that authority any other way. 
You've got to submit to authority in order to run the enemy off your life. As Christians, sometimes we miss it. We don't have authority because we haven't submitted to God's authority in our life. In some area of your life, you are lacking submittance. We don't follow his rule or his way in our lives, and so we lack that authority. And as a result, the devil's having a way with our lives. So number two, the thing that humility does, humility resists the devil. Humility puts God first in our life, and it gives us his authority because we submit to his authority. Anybody here have kids? Anybody here ever babysat kids? Anybody here an aunt or an uncle or spent time with kids ever? That's all of us. Anybody in here? A kid. All right. I got you all covered, so you know I'm talking to you. Listen, if you watch kids long enough, you will watch them fight among themselves over the things that they want. They learn a phrase at a very young age, mine, mine. They want what they want, and they don't care what anybody else says, mine. And as a parent or babysitter, an aunt, an uncle, or grandparent, the way you deal with it is you exert your authority. You step onto the scene. Well, other times, you don't want to get involved because let's be honest, you've been dealing with that all daggone day. And a kid will come up to you and be like, he won't share. He's had it all day long and it's my turn to have it. See, I'm describing some of your kids. Hunched shoulders. Everything is so dramatic. You got a dramatic kid, right? Like, they won't share or they took it from me and it's mine and I want to turn and Here's how you handle it. You go in that room right now and you tell them that daddy said, it's your turn. <laughs> and they run off. You ever had a kid come back to you and go, they won't do it. They're trying to stir the pot. And see, if you're smart, you'll ask the next question before you get all in your rage moment and you bust into the room. <laughs> Did you tell them that I said? Because here's the thing. Your kid doesn't carry any authority on their own. But when they walk into the room and say, Dad said, give it to me, you know demons flee at that moment, right? You know what I'm saying? And the Bible says that if you'll invoke the name of Jesus when you are under his authority that the devil has to run. That if you will say, in Jesus' name, you've got to go, the devil has to go. You are one that is under God's authority. And you got to decide, though, to do things his way. You can't miss that part. You have to decide to live your life his way, and then you can tell the devil to get out of here. So if we recognize this need for course correction, because we've slipped into a life of selfishness where our passions and pleasures rule our lives, we need to get back to a God-centered life where he is first, and we do that through humility. We receive his grace, we receive his authority and his power, and finally, James says this in verse 8 through 9, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. There it is. We've got one foot in the world. We've got one foot in church. And with God, we're divided. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. Dang, James. Why you got me crying over this? Why do I have to be all upset he goes on to say, let there be sorrow and deep grief. James doesn't want you to miss the heaviness of the situation. That when we walk away from God as Christ followers, 
There's something to be sorrowful about. There's something to grieve, and it is loss of relationship. You need to grieve. Be sorrowful. Now listen, he's not trying to have you feel condemned. He's not trying to feel like you're unloved and that there's no hope. No, that's the world's kind of sorrow, and it leads to despair. That's what the devil would have for you. No, that's not what God wants for you. He wants you to understand the weight of your decision to leave this sin in your life. And he says, let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. He says, let there be significant, serious, let there be significant seriousness about what we've done. Take it to heart. Owning the condition of, that we've caused within ourselves, but more so to God. Letting the weight of the fact that we've committed spiritual adultery set in. That we've given ourselves to the world instead of to God. But understand that in light of all that, God still extends his grace. This is why you can weep and cry over what you've done. You can feel sorrow over what you've done because there's hope on the other side. There's God's love and grace that is there. As Christians, we're still going to miss the mark. But God forgives us, and that's why the last thing humility does is humility runs to Jesus. It turns to him. Humility releases God's grace in our lives. It resists the devil, and it runs to Jesus. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need power to overcome the enemy. Come near to Jesus, and he will draw near to you. I pray this week for for all of us in a continual prayer is that we learn to humble ourselves, that we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit as he's leading us, as he reveals areas in our lives that we've slipped away from a God-centered life, and that we can repent and turn to Jesus. Let's do that now. Father, I just pray for this moment. Lord, I know it's a day of celebration, but I believe we can even celebrate this. In fact, I know your word says that when we repent, when we turn away, this is something that you celebrate. And so, Lord, I thank you that in this moment, though we all struggle with this, though all of our hearts can be fickle, though it's easy for us to slip away from you, it's easy to be distracted by the enemy, allowing him to destroy our lives and destroy our relationship with you. But we know that we easily sin. And so in this moment, God, we just ask you to forgive us. We humble ourselves and own that, Lord, and whatever you're speaking to us, in whatever way, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us right now. Speak to me. Show me how I'm walking far from you. And as you do, I pray that I'm humble enough to own it, that we are humble enough to own it, to repent of our sins, to receive your grace, to receive your authority, to resist the devil in this way, and that we can know Jesus better as we do. There are others of you in this room right now. You find yourself far from God. And I'm not sure how you got in that condition, but I am certain that you got there and it's rooted in selfishness and your pride. Maybe the devil's whispered in your ear, you don't need a relationship with God. You don't need to know his people. Maybe he's told you you can't know God. Maybe he's told you you got this and you can do this on your own. Listen, I know what that life leads to. It leads to destruction. 
it leads to a life of pain and maybe that's where you're at you're experiencing that pain in your life but today today is your opportunity to turn all of that around if you'll humble yourselves and say god i need you jesus i need you in my life i'm not perfect but i'm willing to to learn from you i'm willing to learn to follow you the bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that jesus is lord that you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven, you receive God's grace, relationship restored. If that's you, I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. I would love to include you in on that. And if that's you and you're here today, nobody's looking around. I'm not gonna make you stand up or come to the front, but I would like to know that it's you. Would you just slip your hand up and say, Aaron, that's me right now. That's me, I need that. Yeah, thank you, thank you for your honesty, thank you. Thank you, I see your hand, that's awesome, thank you. You can put your hands down, thank you. Look church, let's pray together. Say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Fill my heart. Forgive me of my mistakes. And make me brand new. Show me how to live for you. And I'll spend every day doing that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.